Hello and welcome to Solid 60 number 62. It is Monday the 16th of September. A little later than I wanted. I was going to do one yesterday on the Sunday but I basically started watching Preacher again. Lost the remote because the cat was sitting on it and that was it. That was my afternoon gone. All about Preacher. So I'm well into season three now and it is a rollickingly good ride. The only problem is I just realised that the main actor is in fact so good at being Carl Urban that, and I remember previously on other podcasts, whether it was this one or Banana Split, with no one picking it up, that how, how good Carl Urban is because he can play the character on Preacher so well and then play a completely different character on The Boys with so much more physicality. And I was like, that's the word I use. Amazing. It's a transformation. Part of that transformation I realized last night was the fact that the actor playing Preacher is actually Dominic Cooper, an Englishman, not a Kiwi. So a completely different person, which does explain why in The Boys it's so remarkably different because it's not the same person. So yeah, that's a bit of a facepalm moment. And weirdly enough, as I realised that, I remember going through the same realisation years before like when I first started watching Preacher, and then completely forgot about that and just assumed it was Carl Urban again. They do, to be fair, look a lot alike, so give me that. But, yeah, they're not the same person, and I'm I'm sure either one would be a little bit puzzled as to why I would think they were. But there we go. So I don't know what Carl Urban's been up to in the last couple of years. It wasn't doing Preacher, that's for sure. So, like, since Dread, I thought that was what he was doing. So hopefully he's been keeping busy, and I know he's doing really well with all the reception that the boys has got hopefully they've got plenty of eyes on the screen too and we get more of that and i'll keep watching preacher because i do enjoy dominic and now i kind of want to see how carl carl urban would have played that i like to think it would have been just as intense i really like <laughs> it's not going in a hugely different direction obviously they are quite similar actors but i'd like to see what he would have done with it and maybe you know just do a whole i mean it's done so well but just do it again for the hell of it because it's such a good show it's like a, a great shakespeare play you know, you're not changing the story, you're not changing the script even, you're just getting different people up there and they're adding different emphasis to things. They're maybe chewing the scenery in a different way, but essentially you're sticking to the script. So, yeah, when a show's that good, well, yeah, I'd watch it again with different people. Why not mess with my head? But I don't know, I can't think of anyone else who would play like the vampire character. He kind of reminds me of Spike and also in Angel, there was like an Irish runabout cad that was hanging out with him in the, from the first uh, episode onwards. He has that kind of irascible, happy-go-lucky, so I'm almost like an Australian, and I guess that's where we get it from, the Irish. Larrikin, that's the word. He's basically an Australian larrikin, but in the south, because they've covered Texas, where the first season was set. Then they went to New Orleans, or New Orleans, and then they went to the south, like Louisiana, where his family is from. So they've covered a lot of the stuff in the comic now, I don't, they've met Jesus, they've met, sorry for the spoilers, I can't think of anything else now, because I did read most of the comics, or at least the big trade paperback that I had that went through all this stuff that they're doing now, and they've mixed up the timeline and changed things around a little bit, but essentially they've introduced the same set of characters and players and organisations, and now I don't know where they're going to go. I don't remember the devil being as involved, I don't remember the saint of killers being as involved in the comic that I read. That could be my memory, but man, he's brutal. The guy who plays the, the Saint of Killers and that gun that he's packing, that's got to be one of the most powerful guns 
I've seen in any fictional universe. It is just putting holes in everything. Yeah, that is one. He immediately ascends to the top of badass, implacable Terminator killers. I mean, he even get he calls him the Terminator at one point. He's like, wait, maybe it's from Terminator 2, and maybe it's from that one. It's, that's the Irish guy. Should remember his name. I think it's Cassidy. Oh, there's some brutal, brutal stuff that happens in season three with him and uh, Preacher really coming to blows, forced by circumstances, but also, yeah, the characters, their whole love triangle with Jill, they're definitely growing as people and it's fun to watch them. The relationship dynamics change because he'd always been kind of the, the sidekick to a degree and he starts to assert himself a little bit. And it's What a ride, that's for sure. So here I am, number 62, nothing particularly special about this week. Unfortunately, I'm in the same job. And I've had some good runs. I drove out to Canberra today. Uh, the truck seemed to blow a boost pipe. So I had zero power about halfway there. I got to Marool and it was like, oh, I'm doing 80 on a freeway. This is not good. And that's downhill. So we went to a mechanic after offloading some very heavy glass. And they fixed it pretty quickly. So that was good. So I just got my nine hours and went home. Got a bit tired. At one point I had to stop and have a little rest. Maybe 10 minutes. Because, yes, that's the only thing with the freeways. I love the, the cruisiness of it, but it does tend to... If you haven't had your full eight hours sleep, which on a Sunday night's hard to get, you know, you start going to bed later and later by Friday, and, yeah, it takes its toll. But, essentially, I do get a bit drowsy on some of those longer runs. Well, it's fine going up in the morning, but on the way back, I was just like, oh, man, I want to get an early night tonight. But, unfortunately, tomorrow, it's just mostly going to be... Well, at least two hours, apparently, will be in the warehouse. Loading trucks. So that's not much fun. That's not what I signed up for, but that's just... He's at least good old Gus, the boss, is trying to make work for me because things are a bit slow at the moment. So it's better than being you know, told not to bother coming in. So I can't really complain too much. I am going out on a run to the Northern Beaches... So hopefully I can stretch that out, but not take the piss. Be a good boy. He does trust me to do the job and get it done as efficiently as I can. Thin reason, don't spend all afternoon in the bloody warehouse, because that's really no fun. I like being on my own and getting shit done that way. Well, rather than, yeah, you're really just wandering around the warehouse with a really unclear list of things. Sometimes there's nothing to do and you want to look busy, essentially. Whereas if you're out on the road, it's fairly obvious what you have to do. Go from point A to point B. And along the way, you can keep yourself entertained with podcasts or whatever. Today, I decided to listen to a book that me and a friend want to read. We've got this, basically, I met this girl online. We've only met once. The chemistry was weird. Her family's from Vietnam and I made some crack about going over there and I met a girl there. It's a great first date story to, to mention that you met some girl on your trip to Vietnam. The point was that to get a hotel, I had to rent another room just for her. And then she would obviously just sneak into mine. But it was just that sort of bizarre. It was one of the only countries in Asia, because I've been to most of them, that does not have any kind of traditional red light district. There's guys riding around on scooters asking you if you want a girl, but but there's no bars and things like you get in Thailand and the Philippines and other more famously wild night spots which i guess is has its upsides and downsides like and and yeah she really sort of went for it in terms of yeah that's the way it should be and and they should charge extra like make sure they keep these girls out of those hotels and, and of course me being playing devil's advocate it, it, it got a bit weird there i was like oh well i don't know i mean i'd read a few books on uh, while i was over there because they're selling like these one dollar reprints of uh, actual proper books and one detailed how a lot of these girls, it's their only way th- to empower themselves. And some of them end up running a whole village because they're essentially meeting these white guys, spending an hour with them and getting all this money. Not necessarily doing dirty stuff. Sometimes they're just going out for dates, especially with Japanese and so on. They don't need to do a lot more than 
flirt with them. So it's it's just this weird situation where I felt like I was mansplaining how prostitution was okay to a girl that's who's not from that country per se. She grew up here, but yeah, I just found myself in a really awkward corner that I painted myself into, and I was like, yeah, this is not not what am I doing? Stop. Yeah, that was. But since then, we've been in touch online, and, and it's all been quite good. It wasn't as bad as my first date where I told a girl that it, her being adopted, I likened it to her father going to a uh, pound and basically picking up a, uh, yeah, a pet. I don't know where. I just was one of those stupid asides. I can't spin it in any other way than just complete. You call that when your brain just turns off. Yeah, in the spirit of good humor, I thought it would be taken as such. Clearly was not. I think there was a second date after that, believe it or not. But yeah, it was, it was dead in the water once I kept making stupid gaffes like that. Which this girl seems to have, hopefully, a better sense of humor. And <laughs> yeah, because it was all her fault. God, how could she uh, not just fall over head over heels after that sort of idiot? For the best. It's six o'clock, time to feed the cats. But I do have something to read. I found this section of, like, one of the frustrating things about Reddit is that you see these great GIFs, you know, those short little clips, and you want to share them on Facebook, but a lot of them, you can't save the video. It's just, oh, yeah, you can copy the link, but then it's not very accessible to share it on social media. People just see a link to Reddit, and a lot of the time they don't bother clicking outside of that Facebook blue wall. Like, they just don't want to leave it, so. And obviously, you're scrolling. I get it. You just want to see what have it right in front of you rather than run off but it'd be good if it's just text on a page like a shortened url nine times out of ten you're not going to bother with it so i found like it's called reddit share v reddit share so all the more interesting videos end up getting thrown here in a way that you can actually download them so i'm back back in the right place so i want to go through them and i've been getting some of the better videos and throwing them up on facebook just for because that's you know how i get my validation people liking things that i throw up and they don't have to be things that i personally created anything at all will do for that validation that sweet sweet karma as they say which weirdly on reddit i don't really bother with because i don't feel like i've got a presence on there that reflects my personality in any way there's no photos there's no long-winded history of posts it's just the occasional upvotes and little questions here and there whereas on facebook you got your photos it's a lot more personal i do find the conversations and discussion on reddit a lot more illuminating generally but it's not as social if that makes any sense it's not really yeah a place you go to for ego tickling it's more for good pure original content but there was a status here i did want to read it's a discussion post made in the group marvel cinematic universe is it a group or a page it's a group it's a bit of a mouthful it's called the marvel cinematic universe discussion group it really is what it says on the tin and so i can't really save it I had to cut out a little bit and put it somewhere. And I think I quoted a small part of it. It was either it was some podcast, but basically I did mean to read the whole thing to do it justice. That's Art Spiegelman. I think he wrote Mouse. He's, an ele- he's a legendary Pulitzer Prize winning graphic novelist behind Mouse. There you go. That's the one. That was one of the first, no, I think it was the first independent arty comic that I ever read. It was in Wagga Wagga High School's library for some reason in 1994. I would have picked that up and said, yeah, this is the shit. This is what I need to read. It might have been, because that was year 10. So it would have even been earlier than that, 92 or 93. And it just blew my mind. I was like, wow, it's not just Spider-Man and the X-Force and all those sort of people. It's It could be this serious. And uh, unfortunately, there wasn't a lot more stuff like that at the time. But it, 
open my eyes to what, what you could do with the medium. And I just, to go back to what I was saying before about, because I do that, I'm like an old man off on different tangents. I was talking about what I was doing on the road and what I can listen to and one of those things. That's where I went off on the tangent was the friend that I've been, because she lives a bit of a distance away. Uh, she's in Bondi, basically. So it's like, oh, and I think we've had two attempts at trying to meet up and she got a headache, different excuses. And I know I've really got to take a hint. And I did. I was like, all right, fair enough. I didn't push. I was like, okay, peace out. She got back in touch and she's like, no, no, I'm really sorry. I really want to meet. And I think I want to explore the connection. She was fairly keen about trying again. And she did want to maybe try like a book club thing where we just pick something and both read it. And then when we meet up, we can talk about it. It's a bit nerdy, but that's the kind of thing I'm into. So give it a try. Weirdly, we both picked a book. We were very careful to agree on a book. I thought we'd agreed on Gunslinger. She decided to go and get Crime and Punishment. So I read Gunslinger, or rather listened to it on Audible. And she's halfway through Crime and Punishment. And I've already finished Gunslinger. So I'm fine. I uh, looked it up on Audible. fourteen ninety five. That's fair. Then went, oh, but I kind of want to wait to get my credit because every month you get a credit for a free book well it's not really free because you're paying 16 dollars a month that's still good value i guess but i might have to i don't think i'll be on there forever but it's nice to mix up the podcast with the book now and then essentially what i did next was look on librivox it's a free audible book service where thousands and thousands of books that are in the public domain and other literary works i guess anthologies of poetry and all that sort of thing uh uploaded by volunteers so i thought the quality could be patchy but let's have a look i downloaded an entire thing probably smashed my data while sitting in a hungry jacks in queenbian and then chucked it on because i thought all right she's went and got into this other book i'll make sure i'm caught up on that so i know what i'm talking about when we meet up that wasn't a great idea because the only book i could find on this silly free website so it was an app was the worst ever narration i've ever heard it was like an Eastern European, it was like bulky, crossed with... I can't do justice to how bad this guy was. It was just every single word was said like he'd... Every single word that he said, it was as if that was the first time he had ever uttered it and didn't quite know what to do with the English language in his mouth. Also reading sentences, the emphasis was consistently on the wrong word and it was just doing my head in trying to follow it. Aside from the fact that it's an obscure, not really obscure, but very, no matter which translation you read, crime and punishment is heavy reading. There's a lot of odd circuitous logic and the sentences go left and right and up and down and there's a lot of flowery language and you don't want some guy that's with English as a second language reading it. I guess you get what you pay for. And I thought, well, why isn't there something like this on a podcast? If there, that could be a thing I could do. If there's no podcast out there with classic books that are in the public domain maybe i could corner that market i'm not going to make any money but might get a bunch of downloads it's kind of cool just to give someone an option to go out there and that can't afford to pay for it or just don't want to they can listen to me read it out i had a look just on a whim on my podcast app and lo and behold there's a whole bunch of them anyway so any classic book you can think of there's probably someone that's done a podcast. Weirdly, I found the same one that I'd just been listening to on there as well. So I think LibriVox throws all their stuff onto it gets seeded out to the podcast apps as well. But I did find one that was read out loud by someone who knew what he was doing. Long story short, I'm now listening to a free 
and very well read version of Crime Punishment. Hopefully I can pay attention while on the road. I know what the hell I'm talking about when it comes to that very important second date. Now, back to Art Spiegelman. Sorry, this is going to be the worst episode ever. So he's claimed that he was asked to remove criticism of Donald Trump. I've talked about this before, but I want to read the whole thing. The exact opening thing that he wanted to put in the book, and then they wouldn't let him. But the publisher, Marvel Entertainment CEO Ike Perlmutter, has donated to Trump's campaign. He's trying to stay apolitical, so he didn't let him put in. At least they wanted him to remove that section. And I'm not sure from memory whether he did or not. But this is a Guardian article, and they've just cut and pasted the entire text into this Facebook group. But I'll go with what's in front of me. Created in New York by Jewish immigrants, the first comic book superheroes were mythic saviors who could combat the Nazi threat. They speak to the dark politics of our times. Back in the benighted 20th century, comic books were seen as subliterate trash for kiddies and intellectually challenged adults. Badly written, hastily drawn, and execrably printed. Martin Goodman, the founder and publisher of what is now known as Marvel Comics, once told Stanley that there was no point in trying to make the stories literate or worry about character development. Just give them a lot of action and don't use too many words. It's a genuine marvel that this formula led to works that were so resonant and vital. The comic book format can be credited to a printing salesman, Maxwell Gaines, looking for a way to keep newspaper supplement presses rolling in 1933 by reprinting a collection of popular newspaper comic strips in a half-tabloid format. As an experiment, he slapped a 10-cent sticker on a handful of the free pamphlets and saw them quickly sell out at a local newsstand. Soon, most of the famous funnies were being gathered into comic books by a handful of publishers, and new content was needed at cheap reprint rates. This new material was mostly made up of third-rate imitations of existing newspaper strips, or genre stories echoing adventure, detective, western, or jungle pulps. As Marshall McLuhan once pointed out, every medium subsumes the content of the medium that precedes it, before it finds its own voice. Enter Jerry Siegel, an aspiring teenage writer, and Joe Schuster, a young would-be artist, both nerdy, alienated, Jewish misfits, many decades before that was remotely cool. They dreamed of the fame, riches, and admiring glances from girls that a syndicated strip might bring, and developed their idea of a superhuman alien from a dying planet who would fight for truth, justice, and the values of President Roosevelt's New Deal. Barely out of childhood themselves, the boy's idea was rejected by the newspaper syndicates as naive, juvenile, and unskilled, before Gaines bought their 13 pages of Superman samples for Action Comics at 10 bucks a page, a fee that included all rights to the character. Not only was Siegel and Schuster's creation the model for the brand new genre that came to define the medium, their lives were the tragic paradigm for creators built of the large rewards their creations bought their publishers. It's generally agreed that Superman launched the Golden Age of Comics in June 1938 with his debut in Action Comics 1, published by what is now known as DC Comics. Siegel and Schuster had created a new archetype, or perhaps more accurately a new stereotype, and by 1940, once the nascent genre had demonstrated that it could get kids to part with millions of dimes per month, swarms of imitators catapulted hordes of four-colour heroes into the skies, all chasing the gold in this golden age. The juvenile naivety of Superman was, as it seems, actually part of its allure, inviting youngsters into a new, especially kid-friendly kind of story, whose fantasies were even more unfettered by logic 
than most prose pulp fiction, all presented with diagrammatic visuals in primary and secondary colours that could make every page a theatre curtain to be raised onto new eyeball kicks and action. Goodman, trend-surfing's publisher of some lurid pulps, was one of the first to ride the superhero wave, immediately making a giant splash with his first issue of Marvel Comics in October 1939. First printing of 80,000 copies was followed by a reprint of 800,000 more. The content was provided by Funnies Inc., a comic book packager that could produce complete comics from concept to finished art for nascent publishers who wanted to keep their overheads low. These shops had something in common with the garment district sweatshops that many of the artist family members worked in, usually done as a piecework while punching a time clock with many hands, scriptwriters, pencilers, inkers and letterers, all attacking the original pages almost simultaneously. This was more of a small industry than an art form. It recruited green youngsters, washed up old hacks and even when the Second World War came along and drafted many of the young men who filled the growing demand for comics, women people of colour and other interlopers. Those interlopers, by the way, still had to provide the racist and sexist stereotypes that have long been a touchstone of the whole medium. At this point, it might be worth pointing out, not out of ethnic pride, but because it might shed some light on the rawness and specific themes of the early comics, that the pioneers behind this embryonic medium, based in New York, were predominantly Jewish and from ethnic minority backgrounds. It wasn't just Siegel and Schuster, but a whole generation of recent immigrants and their children those most vulnerable to the ravages of the Great Depression, who were especially attuned to the rise of virulent anti-Semitism in Germany. They created the American Übermenschen, who fought for a nation that would at least nominally welcome your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. To name-check just a few of the secular Jews who adopted Clark Kent-like secret identities, Gaines was born Max Ginsburg. Goodman's parents immigrated from villainous Lithuania, Jack Kirby, nay Jacob Kurtzberg, the powerhouse who co-created Captain America with his landsman Joe Simon, who was born in the slums of New York's Lower East Side, and Stan Lee, who became the face of Marvel Comics, was Goodman's wife's cousin, nepotistically hired as a 17-year-old office boy named Stanley Lieber. Though not welcome in the higher precincts of advertising and publishing, they were all able to find their niche at the bottom of the barrel. The unseasoned artists in these comics factories discovered the possibilities of a new form while under do-or-die deadline pressures. They picked up their skills by copying each other and by stealing directly from the masters of the newspaper adventure comics. Alex Raymond, Flash Gordon, Secret Agent X-9, Hal Foster, Tarzan, Prince Valiant, Milton Caniff, Terry and the Pirates. On the other hand, Carl Burgos, nay Max Finkelstein, who created the lead feature in Marvel Comics 1, The Human Torch, proudly said if they wanted Raymond or Caniff, they could have look at Raymond or Caniff. Their miserable drawing was all mine. A writer-artist, his then rudimentary drawing skills, were buttressed by an intuitive visual storytelling ability and were applied to an inspired character, the Human Torch. The character, an anthropomorphized streak of red and yellow flame, had a graphic intensity that burned its way into readers' eyeballs and personified the raw, crackling energy of the early comic books before they were domesticated. William Blake Bill Everett, Burgos' comrade at Funnies Inc., was an oddity in comics. For one thing, he wasn't Jewish. Everett came from a 300-year-old patrician Massachusetts family, and he really was a direct descendant of his namesake. He came to the outsider status that drew him to comics via an addictive personality. He was a heavy drinker from the age of 12 and had a three-pack-a-day cigarette habit. Or maybe it was an outsider's sensibility that drove him to drink. He was one of the most gifted artists 
ever to work in comic books. He drew fluidly, was comfortable in many genres, and had a sense of page design that allowed the reader's eye to find buried visual treasures while swimming effortlessly through a story. His alienated anti-hero, Namor the Submariner, was the forefather of a long line of troubled characters that would populate the Marvel Universe a couple of decades later. In the 1940s, the Submariner was singular, a marked contrast to the square-jawed vigilante do-gooders who lived in the less scruffy DC Comics neighbourhood. Never fully at home in the ocean or in the air, Namor was proud, arrogant, and more volatile than the Human Torch, his complementary opposite. But water and fire combined to bring Marvel Comics to an elemental boil. In late 1940, a year before Pearl Harbor, while the Nazis were blitzkrieging London, Simon, an entrepreneurial freelancer for Funnies Inc., was hired by Goodman to write, draw, and edit for him directly. Simon showed him the cover concept for a new superhero that he and Kirby had dreamed up. A hero dressed like an American flag with giant biceps and abs of steel has just burst into a Nazi headquarters and knocked Hitler over with a haymaker to the jaw. Goodman began to tremble, knowing what an impact this book would make, and remained anxious until the first issue of Captain America, dated March 1941, landed on the stands. Goodman had been terrified that someone might assassinate Hitler before the comic book came out. Captain America was a recruiting poster, battling against the real Nazi supervillains while Superman was still fighting cheap gun sets, strike breakers, greedy landlords and Lex Luthor, and America was still equivocating about entering the conflict at all. No wonder Simon and Kirby's comic book became an enormous hit, selling close to a million copies a month through the war. But not everyone was a fan. In 1941, according to Simon, the German-American Bund and America's Firsters bombarded the publisher's offices with hate mail and obscene phone calls that screamed, Death to the Jews! Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia, a real-life superhero, called to reassure him, saying, The city of New York will see that no harm comes to you. Kirby's hyperkinetic figures with hypertrophied muscles left human anatomy in the dust. His characters were bellicose, humorless, single-minded, and angry as they burst out of sawtooth panels and widescreen spreads. His art set the tone for superheroic action, not just during the war years, but ever since. I know that Kirby was a protean original as a comic book creator, as well as a genuine war hero, but I confess that I have a blind spot when it comes to the superhero genre that grew out of the template he set. Even when I was 12, superheroes were my methadone. I was deeply addicted to satire magazines such as Mad, and the old newspaper comics I discovered in my public library's bound volumes. I preferred more mature fare like Donald Duck and Little Lulu. You see, I love the form of comics, the pages full of co-mixed words and pictures butting up against each other, all those little boxes you have to compare and contrast to pry out the narrative juice, and I adore the weird idiosyncrasies of cartoon language in all its accents. Those who find superheroes the alpha and omega of comics date the end of the golden age to some time in the post-war 1940s when interest in the genre faded. Disenchanted GIs, no longer an eager and captive audience, may have realised that it wasn't Captain America who won the war. Maybe it was the Russians. In any case, demobbed soldiers either grew out of the comic book habit or shifted their attention to other genres. Crime, cowboy romance, horror and war-themed comics flourished, often with more mature and even lurid content designed for older readers. I date the end of the Golden Age to 1954. A moral panic built on the false assumption that the medium was strictly for young kids and was turning them into juvenile delinquents had led to comic book burnings and to US Senate hearings that ultimately put many publishers out of business and maimed the rest. Sanitized superheroes 
brought the median off-life support in 1956, now hailed as the beginning of the Silver Age. But the medium never regained the ubiquity it had in its heyday, as comic books, as movies that conquered the world. Back in the Golden Age, if you wanted to see some guy in a cape fly over a skyscraper or turn New York City into rubble, comic book panels were the most satisfying delivery system. In the 21st century, thanks to the miracle of CGI, many millions of people around the globe who have never read a comic or heard of graphic novels go to multiplexes to worship the new deities that embody the DNA of comics. The young Jewish creators of the first superheroes conjured up mythic, almost godlike, secular saviors to deal with the threatening economic dislocations that surrounded them in the Great Depression and gave shape to their premonitions of impending global war. Comics allowed readers to escape into fantasy by projecting themselves onto invulnerable heroes. Auschwitz and Hiroshima make more sense as dark comic book cataclysms than as events in our real world. In today's all-too-real world, Captain America's most nefarious villain, the Red Skull, is alive on screen, and an orange skull haunts America. International fascism again looms large. How quickly we humans forget. Study these Golden Age comics hard, boys and girls. And the dislocations that have followed the global economic meltdown of 2008 helped bring us to a point where the planet itself seems likely to melt down. Armageddon seems somehow plausible, and we're all turned into helpless children, scared of forces grander than we can imagine, looking for respite and answers and superheroes flying across screens in our chapel of dreams. So that's it. There is an addendum. I'll brush through that. While the content of comic books has hijacked our cinema, the form of comics cleverly disguised as graphic novels has infiltrated what's left of our literary culture. When the Folio Society, venerable publisher of luxurious illustrated books since 1947, decided to plunge in with the deluxe compilation of Golden Age Marvel Comics. They introduced me, as a graphic novelist and comic book scholar, to write an introduction to the book. Perhaps they misguidedly figured that I might lend the endeavour a fig leaf of respectability. I turned the essay in at the end of June, substantially the same as what appears here. A regretful Folio Society editor told me that Marvel Comics, evidently the co-publisher, is trying to stay apolitical and is not allowing its publications to take a political stance. I was asked to alter or remove the sentence that refers to the Red Skull, or the intro could not be published. I didn't think of myself as especially political compared with some of my fellow travellers, but when asked to kill a relatively anodyne reference to an orange skull, I realised that perhaps I had been irresponsible to be playful about the dire existential threat we now live with, and I withdrew my introduction. A revealing story serendipitously showed up in my newsfeed this week. I learnt that the billionaire chairman and former CEO of Marvel, Isaac Ike Perlmutter, is a long-time friend of Donald Trump's, an unofficial and influential advisor and a member of the president's elite, Mar-a-Lago Club in Palm Beach, Florida. Perlmutter and his wife have each recently donated $360,000, the maximum allowed, to the Orange Skulls Trump Victory Joint Fundraising Committee for 2020. I've also had to learn yet again that everything is political, just like Captain America sucking Hitler on the jaw. So he pulled the entire thing, and good on him. It was a beautiful uh, intro. I mean, it really wrapped up the entire history. It sort of dropped the 70s and 80s out. It sort of jumped from the 60s right to now. But, you know, we'd be here all night otherwise. Yeah, I like that. Good old art. I'll have to uh, see what else he's got out there online. And still all his other work. Disappointing. At least it's good to see that he's 
This guy, Ike, is a former CEO, so I don't know who char is in charge now, but maybe, you know, they can follow in the footsteps of some of the actors of the Marvel superheroes and display a little bit more robust a political stance. In Yeah, because oh, that guy, I'm glad he's out, let's put it that way. At least the story got put out somewhere, if not in the beginning of that folio. So I can close that, and I think, bring this to an end because i've kept you long enough so get on with your day enjoy whether this is before or after work enjoy what's left of it i'm going to go get my pies and feed the cats in the meantime y'all have a good week and peace out